I've always loved a good story, and I love the old fairy tales, the old fairy tales, like Jack and the Beanstalk, written in 1890, or The Adventures of Pinocchio, written in 1883, Snow White, 1823, Hansel and Gretel, 1812, Cinderella, 1697, Tom Thumb, 1621, the old fairy tales. And every good fairy tale begins once upon a time and ends with, and they lived happily ever after. But always in between once upon a time and happily ever after, there's always a problem. Heartache, violence, Darkness, death, you know this, especially if you've ever read any of the original unedited versions of these fairy tales. They are very, very dark, but always have a bright ending. For example, in the original Jack and the Beanstalk, Jack's mom beats him up and sends him off to his room without supper when she has found out that he sold their cow for magical beans. And there's an ogre Jack runs into in the sky who eats human boys. But this dark story has a bright ending. Jack escapes the ogre, and his mom loves him again, and they live happily ever after. In the original Snow White, Snow White's mother dies, and her father remarries an evil woman who becomes her stepmother. And this evil stepmother hates Snow White because she is more beautiful than her. And she hires a huntsman to take her out into the woods to kill her and to bring back her lungs and liver so that she can eat them. And when Snow White isn't killed, the stepmother takes measures, uh, takes matters into her own hands and she disguises herself as an old woman and gives her a poison apple that kills her. But this dark story has a bright ending. Snow White returns to life. She falls in love with a prince and the prince's men put a pair of iron shoes into hot coals and place them on the evil stepmother's feet and then she is forced to dance in those hot shoes until she falls down dead. And Snow White and the Prince live happily ever after. In the original Hansel and Gretel, there's a famine in the land and an old mother abandons her kids, Hansel and Gretel, in the woods. And an evil old lady who eats children uh, lures Hansel and Gretel into her house made of bread and cake and sugar. But this dark story has a bright ending. The evil old lady is pushed into an oven and burned alive. <laughs> and Hansel and Gretel find their way back home to discover that their evil mother has died. And they live happily ever after. <laughs> so apparently evil family members and children being eaten <laughs> were pretty popular literary motifs in the 16, 17, and 1800s. <laughs> and what do we see in the book of Ruth? In the dark days when the judges ruled and when Israel had no king and everyone just did what was right in his own eyes, a couple named Elimelech and Naomi leave Bethlehem with their two sons, Malon and Kilion, during a famine, and they sojourn in Moab. And then Malon and Kilion take Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, and then Elimelech dies, and then Malon dies, and then Kilion dies, and the three women are left widowed. And then Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem, but Orpah ditches her to go back to Moab. 
And when Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, they have no husbands, they have no family, they have no food. And it's even worse for Ruth because she's a foreigner. She's looked down upon in society and she has no child, no offspring to continue the family line and the family name. But in the providence of God, glimmers of light begin to creep into the shadows of this dark story. And at the end of the story, Boaz marries Ruth and they have a child named Obed and they live happily ever after. The story of Ruth is a fairy tale. And the bright ending, just like every good fairy tale, is born out of heartache and darkness and death. But the story of Ruth is a different kind of fairy tale. Because it's actually real. It's not fictional, it's historical. And it's the only fairy tale I know of that doesn't actually have an ending. Now I know what you're thinking. I just told you that on one hand, Boaz marries Ruth and they live happily ever after. But on the other hand, that this story doesn't actually have an ending. How does that work? This morning we're gonna find out. And we're gonna talk about fairy tales and happily ever after in this never ending story. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter four. And before we dig in, let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word. Your word which revives the soul, gives us wisdom for life, enlightens our understanding, and endures forever. Lord God, may your word be like honey on our lips, like the the sweetest song to our ears like the breath of life itself. Come now, Lord, and help us to understand your word this morning. Amen. So if you're with us three weeks ago, we began in the book of Ruth, and um, we talked about how in the days when the judges ruled, Elimelech and Naomi leave their hometown of Bethlehem with their two sons during a famine, and they sojourn in Moab. And their sons Malon and Kilion marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, but later Elimelech and both of his sons die, leaving Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah as widows. And so Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. And Ruth comes with her saying, your people will be my people and your God, my God. And when they return, it's the beginning of barley harvest. And then two weeks ago, We talked about how one of the very first things that happens when Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem is that a man emerges from the shadows into this story and he's a near relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. His name's Boaz and he is a man who loves God and a man who loves God's people. And he shows incredible kindness to Ruth. And remember, we saw that Boaz was such a wonderful example of true kindness, not because he was obedient to the law, but because over and over again, we see him going above and beyond the law to bless Ruth in loving, compassionate, and gracious ways. And at the end of chapter two, we're left wondering, will Boaz continue to be a part of Ruth's story? And perhaps in a big way. And then last week, we saw Ruth going to Boaz in the middle of the night, where she uncovered his feet and laid down, and he woke up startled to see her. 
And then she asked him to marry her. And at the end of chapter three, the only thing standing in between the marriage of Boaz and Ruth is a kinsman redeemer who is a closer relative than Boaz. A relative who perhaps would be more eligible to redeem and marry Ruth. But Boaz will not rest until this matter is settled and Ruth is redeemed. If this other redeemer will marry Ruth, good. But if he won't, Boaz will. And so we come to chapter four where we find out what happens. Verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the city gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. What's weird about this first verse? This is one of Boaz's relatives. Surely Boaz knows him. But Boaz calls him not his name, but friend. And likewise, the author doesn't name him either. He only calls him the Redeemer. This is strange because in this chapter alone, the author will mention 19 other people by name. But not this man. Why? Is there a reason? It's interesting, in the Hebrew text, the author doesn't have Boaz calling this man Mereah, the Hebrew word for friend. The author actually has Boaz calling this man Poloni Almoni, which is basically the Hebrew way of saying so-and-so. What's happening here? Why is the author intentionally concealing the identity of this man by calling him so-and-so? Let's keep reading and see if we can guess why in a bit. Verses two through four. And Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then Boaz said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the Redeemer said, I will redeem it. So Boaz gathers 10 men of the elders of the city to serve as witnesses as he works out this family matter with this unnamed Redeemer regarding this parcel of land. And evidently what happened was that when Elimelech and Naomi left Bethlehem and sojourned in Moab during the famine, they must have left behind some property uh, which they retained ownership of. And so 10 years later, when Naomi returned to Bethlehem, she still had this property. But the problem was that she didn't have the means or the ability to do anything with it or to make money off it. But if she sells it, then she and Ruth can have money to live on. And if a kinsman redeemer, a near relative, bought it, then the land could at least be kept in the family, which was a good thing. Now, I don't want to spend the whole sermon talking about Israelite laws of land ownership, and you probably don't want me to do that either. But it's worth mentioning briefly here that technically, as a widow, According to Israelite law, Naomi didn't actually have the right to buy or sell any land outright. 
However, she could potentially control the use of her land. And so commentators think that Boaz was probably offering the unnamed redeemer the purchase of the right to use Naomi's land, not the outright purchase of the land itself. And this would be a great deal. Um, He could buy the right to use the land for fairly cheap and make a ton of money off of it through farming, and he'd be carrying out a respected family duty. This financial and familial investment was a no-brainer, and he immediately agrees. But Boaz throws in one caveat, verse five. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, it was probably assumed that as part of the redemption, the Redeemer would have to provide for Naomi with profits from the land, but the Redeemer probably wasn't assuming that the land came with a Moabite woman, that the property and Ruth the Moabite were a package deal. If the Redeemer would redeem the land, he would be expected to, according to this cultural custom, in the spirit of leveret marriage, also redeem Ruth, the childless widow. And now the moment is tense, and we're left wondering, wait, what about Boaz? Will romance surrender to regulation? Will love surrender to legality? Will the happily ever after surrender to the unnamed redeemer? And now comes the moment of truth, verse six. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. (laughs) Take my right of redemption yourself, Boaz, for (laughs) I cannot redeem it. The unnamed redeemer immediately withdraws his offer to serve as the redeemer because he knew that if he bore a child with Ruth that the land would eventually fall out of his possession into the child's possession when he got older because the child would actually be considered Elimelech's heir and not his. That's how redemption worked. So this redemption would be a terrible financial investment. He'd become responsible for providing for Naomi and the child who wouldn't even be considered his own heir. This redemption wouldn't help him. It would cost him. But isn't that what redemption is? Isn't redemption motivated by chesed, loving kindness and not personal gain? Isn't redemption an expression of personal sacrifice? This is why I believe this man is left unnamed by the author, because this redeemer is not willing to be a redeemer. He's left unnamed because he's not worthy to be remembered. He's just so-and-so. So what happens next, verses seven through 10? Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, 
You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the city gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So the unnamed redeemer, according to this cultural custom, takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz to symbolize the transfer of the right of redemption from himself to Boaz. Remember, this unnamed redeemer was the closer relative, the first in line to redeem. And so in this interesting little ceremony, he was surrendering his redeeming right and giving it to Boaz. And then Boaz buys the land that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion and Malon, and Ruth takes Moabite to be his wife. Finally, finally. And what happens next? Verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the city gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Here, the Israelite witnesses were accepting Ruth the Moabite as one of them, a full-fledged Israelite, a sister in the Lord, the wife of Boaz. This was huge. And not only that, but they wish incredible blessings upon Ruth, that she'd be like Rachel and Leah, who, along with their servants Zilpah and Bilhah, built up the house of Israel as they gave birth to Reuben and Simeon and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun, and Benjamin, and Dan, and Naphtali, and Gad, and Asher, and Ephraim, and Manasseh, 12 sons who eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel. This was huge. And not only that, but they wished that Ruth might become renowned in Bethlehem, right where they presently are. They wished for her renown in their own town. This was huge. And not only that, but they wish that Ruth might preserve Elimelech's family line and have an impact on history itself, just like Tamar, who, who was also a foreigner and who also preserved a family line that was threatened with extinction and whose life had an impact on history itself as she gave birth to Perez, who was in the line of the Messiah to come. This was huge. And then comes the final scene of the story, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. For Boaz and Ruth, this was happily ever after. Ruth's situation as a childless widow is finally redeemed, and redeemed by an incredible man of God. And God gives them a child. What a blessing. And this story could have ended with a great fairy tale ending right here, but it doesn't. Why not? Because this story, which is called the Book of Ruth, is not actually about Ruth. Let's keep reading and take notice of the two people who don't show up for the rest of the book. 
verses 14 through the first half of 17. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Now hold on. If you're following along, you know that that sounds kind of weird for several reasons. Firstly, the women say that the Lord has not left Naomi without a redeemer. But Boaz was the redeemer and he redeemed Ruth, not Naomi. So who was this redeemer? We talked about last week how God is the ultimate redeemer. But do the women say that God redeemed Naomi? Her situation as a childless widow? Go back to verse 15. He shall be to you, Naomi, a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi's redeemer is the child. There are three redeemers in this story. God, Boaz, and now the child. Secondly, look at this, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Now, why would they say that? A child was not born to Naomi. A child was born to Boaz and Ruth. Remember back to chapter 1. Naomi had lost her two sons, and she returned to Bethlehem, saying, the Lord has brought me back empty. And there was no offspring to continue her family line in the name of Elimelech, her husband. This child at the end of the story was born to Naomi in the sense that he would be a restorer of her life, meaning he'd bring fullness to her emptiness. He'd bring comfort to her unrest. He'd bring joy to her bitterness. He'd restore her life when all she had experienced was just death and death and death. And he'd be a nourisher of her old age, meaning he'd eventually inherit the parcel of land that belonged to Boaz, uh, from Boaz to continue to provide food for Naomi. And he'd continue the family line and the family name of Elimelech, her husband. For Naomi, this was happily ever after. Finally, Naomi's situation as a widow is redeemed and redeemed by a child from God, born of Boaz and Ruth. What a blessing. And the story could have ended right here with a great fairy tale ending but it doesn't. Why not? Because this story isn't actually about Ruth, and it's not actually about Naomi either. Let's keep reading. The second half of verse 17 through verse 22. They named him the child born to Boaz and Ruth, Obed. 
He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Obed would give birth to Jesse, who would give birth to David. David, who killed Goliath as a young boy with a stone in a sling. David, who became king of Judah and united the 12 tribes of Israel. David, who conquered Jerusalem and defeated the Philistines and defeated Moab and defeated Ammon and defeated Syria and brought peace to Israel. David, who penned the famous words of Psalm 51 and also 70 other psalms. David, the greatest king of Israel. What a great way to end the book of Ruth by showing that Ruth and Boaz and Naomi were all characters in a bigger story, a story about the events that led to the birth of David. And that's where this story ends. Or is it? That's not where this story ends. Remember I said at the beginning of this sermon that this is the never-ending story. That this story doesn't actually have an ending. How so? If you know the rest of the story, you know that this story doesn't end with Ruth, doesn't end with Naomi, and doesn't end with King David because through the line of King David would come the Messiah. Another child born in Bethlehem. Another king over God's people. Another redeemer, the ultimate redeemer, the sovereign and divine author of life and creation and history who would write himself into his own story. And it's amazing to look back from the New Testament into the Old to see how the author of life was preparing the way to enter into his own story all the way back to David and to Jesse and to Obed and to Boaz and Ruth. But are Boaz and Ruth actually the beginning of this redemption story? Wasn't the coming of the perfect judge, the light of the world and the king of kings anticipated in the cycles of the failed judges in the dark days in Israel when Israel had no king and everyone just did what was right in his own eyes and the book of Judges? Wasn't the coming of the greatest leader of God's people who would bring them into the greater promised land of heaven foreshadowed in Israel's entrance into Canaan under Joshua in the book of Joshua? Wasn't the coming of the divine word of God foreshadowed in the God who spoke at various times in many ways in the book of Deuteronomy? Wasn't the coming of the bread of life the living water and the suffering savior who was hung on a cross foreshadowed in the manna sent from heaven, the rock that was struck to give water and life, and the serpent that was hung on a pole to heal whoever looked upon it during Israel's wilderness wanderings in the book of Numbers? 
wasn't the great high priest, the coming of the great high priest and the spotless lamb who was slain foreshadowed in the sacrificial system in Leviticus? Wasn't the coming of the divine deliverer of God's people from the slavery of sin and the presence of God among man foreshadowed in the Israelites' exodus from Egypt and the tabernacle in the book of Exodus? Wasn't the coming of the serpent slayer the Son of God and the innocent sufferer anticipated in the prophecy regarding the head of the serpent that would be crushed in Genesis 3.15 and foreshadowed in Abraham's near sacrifice of his own son Isaac and in the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. The entire Bible might be split into three main sections. Section one, life in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapters one and two. Section two, the fall of man and removal from the garden. Genesis chapter three. And section three, trying to get back to life in the garden. Genesis chapter four through Revelation chapter 22. And all of section three anticipates foreshadows, points toward, and magnifies the only one who could and would redeem his people and bring them back to the garden, Jesus Christ. But was God's plan of redemption through Jesus plan B? Something he initiated after section two, after the fall of man, or was it plan A? something God had in his heart, even in section one, during life in the garden, before the fall of man. Actually, there's another piece to this story, something that exists off the pages of the Bible, something that came before section one and will continue after section three. And that is the infinite and eternal God who was and is and is to come, who before the foundation of the world purposed to redeem his people through the cross of Christ. Incredibly, the cross of Christ was never plan B for God, but always plan A. Why? Because the Bible says that God does not change. God's plans do not change. God's purposes do not change. God accomplishes all his will, and God knows all things. That's why Revelation 13, 8 talks about Christ being the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That's why Acts 2, 23 says that Christ was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And furthermore, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says that God chose us, his people, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world as well, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the infinite, eternal, unchanging purpose of his will. If you're a follower of Jesus today, know that God had you and your redemption in mind before you even existed, before Jesus even came, and before the foundation of the world itself. If you're a follower of Jesus today, 
know that your story did not begin once upon a time because your story technically didn't even begin but originated within the heart of the infinite, eternal God. Your story did not begin once upon a time but originated within the heart of the infinite, eternal God. But if you're a follower of Jesus today, know that your story will be happily ever after and will never end because after this life, you will be with the Lord in glory forever. Your story will be happily ever after and will never end. Now, I want to say something about the happily part of happily ever after because I know that oftentimes it's hard to see happily ever after at the end of our story. And that's because life gets hard. Because life isn't always happy. Because there is real suffering. So what do you do? Well, New Age philosophy has an idea and is very optimistic about their suffering. And they say that suffering is just not real. Suffering is just a mental construct that you have created in your own head. You just need to think differently. Lovely. The philosophy of hedonism says that you need to live for your own personal pleasure to be happy. If it's not pleasurable, don't do it. Don't worry about others, worry about you. Stoicism says that you need a stern self-control that is indifferent to happiness and to suffering. You can't let happiness or suffering affect you at all. Pessimism says that suffering is just the nature of the world. So get used to it because it's never going to change. It's never going to get any better. Nihilism says that life is just meaningless anyway, so who cares if you're happy or not? In the end, it's just death. But New Age is unrealistic about the reality of suffering. Hedonism makes man God. Stoicism is heartless, cold, and unfeeling. Pessimism is hopeless, and nihilism is death. I think mankind creates fairy tales because we are desperate to believe, in spite of all of our pain and sin and suffering, that our lives will somehow end in happily ever after. And we will break the chains of realism and reality and create fictional worlds to do it. But if you want to really deal with your suffering, you need a bigger story. And you need a better story. You need not an escape from reality, not indifference toward reality, not hatred of reality, but the wonderful truth about reality. And that means that you do need a fairy tale. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1,200 or so years after the events of the book of Ruth, Jesus Christ left his heavenly throne, became a man, and entered into our story this filthy, fallen, sinful world. He lived a perfect, sinless, and obedient life before the Father and then gave up his life unto death, even death on a cross. When our sin had put us all on death row because the punishment for a lifetime of sinning against the holy God is death, Jesus came in and said, 
I will redeem my people and buy them back from death. I will take upon myself what they deserve so that they might receive what I deserve. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Jesus went before his people and took down their greatest enemy on the cross, their own sin. And when he died, their sin died. For the people of God, their death died in Jesus' death on the cross. That's why John Owen called it the death of death in death. The death of death in death. Jesus was then buried in a tomb but rose three days later proving that he was who he claimed to be and conquering the powers of Satan and sin and death. Even death itself couldn't hold him because he is the author of life. And then Jesus ascended into heaven where he promised to prepare a place for his people and to come back to bring them there to be with him forever. And today Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God the Father pleading the cause of his people and praying that they will not fall away. And for all who will turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus for salvation, they who were once in Adam are now in Christ. They who were once a child of wrath are now a child of God. They who were once an enemy of God are now a friend of God. They who were once a wandering stranger are now a citizen of heaven. Those who were once lost in darkness are now redeemed by light. Those who were once an outcast are now near to God. Those who were once under a curse are now blessed. Those who were once filthy are now made clean. Those who were once guilty are now forgiven. Those who were once dead are now alive. The gospel says that God desires your holiness more than he desires your happiness. And oftentimes, holy people are happy people. Oftentimes, holy people, people who are separated unto God, are happy people. Why? Because by God's grace, there is a joy in being alive. There is a joy in being made clean. There is a joy in being forgiven. There is a joy in being blessed. There's a joy in being redeemed. There's a joy in being near to God. There's a joy in knowing God. There is a joy in walking with God. There is a joy in loving God. And there's a joy in being loved by God. A joy that makes our suffering look small. A joy that says, I am afflicted but not crushed. I am confused but not without hope. I am persecuted, but not forsaken. I am struck down, but not destroyed. Though my outer self is wasting away, I am being renewed day by day. This light and momentary affliction is preparing me for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I refuse to fix my eyes on my momentary affliction. I will choose to fix my eyes on my Lord. I serve a savior who was betrayed and beaten and brutally murdered for the purpose of saving my soul from a suffering that is infinitely worse than the suffering of this life. I know that this life is the closest I will ever be to hell. And Lord, had you not saved me by your grace, this life would be the closest I would have ever been to heaven. 
oftentimes the people fighting the most for happiness in life are the ones who end up the most miserable. Why? Because in some way they're trying to find life apart from Jesus. They're trying to find satisfaction apart from Jesus. They're trying to find hope apart from Jesus. They're trying to find comfort apart from Jesus. They're trying to find redemption apart from Jesus. They're trying to find happily ever after at the end of their story apart from Jesus, the author of their story. Let me tell you, the story of life is the only story that's ever been written where the author knows and loves his characters so much that he actually enters into the story to be with them. The story of life is the only story that's ever been written where the author knows and loves his characters so much that he actually enters into the story to be with them. And the story of life is the only story where the author actually dies to save his characters. If today you know that you have been fighting and fighting and fighting to find happily ever after at the end of your story and you still can't see it, then you need a bigger story and you need a better story. You need to see that your story can be happily ever after right now by turning to Jesus for life and salvation. Not because Jesus is the means to an end called happily ever after, but because Jesus is the end in himself. The whole point of the story, your story can be happily ever after right now because Jesus is the end in himself. What was Boaz and Ruth and Naomi's happily ever after? The child? No, it was the God who brought them the child. The God who was sovereignly orchestrating all things according to his purpose and plan for his people's good and for his own glory and who would, through the line of the child, bring the Messiah into the world. J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote The Lord of the Rings, wrote in his essay on fairy stories, he said, the gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, artistic, beautiful, and moving. And among the marvels is the greatest joy. The gospel begins and ends in joy. And there is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true. If the story of Ruth had ended with the child born to Boaz and Ruth, it would be a beautiful story. But it doesn't end that way. It points forward to the Redeemer beyond the story, the Redeemer beyond Boaz, the Redeemer beyond Obed, the ultimate Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer who brings fullness to our emptiness, the Redeemer who brings comfort to our unrest, the Redeemer who brings life to our death. And if today you trust in this Redeemer, know that you have happily ever after right now because you have Jesus right now. And know that your story has been woven into the fairy tale of forever. 
this never-ending story which began in eternity past and will continue on into eternity's future. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the book of Ruth. Lord, a story all about your providence, the idea that you are sovereignly orchestrating all things according to your purpose and plan for your people's good and for your own glory. Lord God, thank you for showing us that behind our frowning providences is your hidden smile in chapter one. Thank you for showing us that we can get true kindness that isn't compelled by duty, but by genuine love when we worship you, the one who is perfectly kind in chapter two. Lord God, thank you for showing us that in contrast to Boaz, you are the redeemer who comes for us in chapter three. And Lord God, thank you for showing us that ultimately all of life is your story, a story that you are still writing and that our individual stories can be happily ever after right now because of Jesus here in chapter four. Lord God, help us to trust that you are just as intimately involved in the events of our lives as you were in the lives of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. And Lord God, help us to trust that even if the bud of life is bitter now, the flower that eventually blossoms will be sweet because of Jesus. We ask this in your name, amen.